Welcome back to the FKT Podcast, brought to you by Merrill Test Lab. I'm your host, Heather Anderson. Today we're chatting with Hilary Girardi, who recently set the supported women's round-trip time on Mont Blanc. Join us as we chat about all things alpine, including the marrying of fast and light travel with alpinism, and how the mountains shift our perspectives of goals and ourselves. Thank you, Merrill, for supporting not only this podcast, but the fastestknowntime.com website and the FKT community. Merrill invites you to put yourself and their new Skyfire 2 shoe, their newest, lightest, and fastest trail running shoe, to the test on your next adventure. It's available over at Merrill.com. Thank you so much, Hillary, for joining us on the show today. I'm really excited to chat with you about your recent Mont Blanc FKT. And before we get started, I would love it if you could talk a little bit about how your route differed, because I know your FKT was set using an alternate route from the previous records on Mont Blanc. So could you maybe describe the differences in the route uh, and why you chose to go this way? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks so much for having me on, Heather. I'm really psyched to be able to talk to you uh, about this this FKT, which is super meaningful for me. And part of the meaning, actually, for me is around the route that I took. So it's a great opener question. So basically, I mean, the FKT in Mont Blanc, um, the classic route goes, it's from Chamonix to the summit and back to Chamonix. And it's the church in the center of town, which is kind of like the way Europeans oftentimes historically take their their record setting. They like to start at the church. Initially, when I was started thinking about going for the FKT, I didn't really think that much about what route I would take. It was kind of like, well, you know, here's the GPX track. Like, that's obviously what I would follow. And then this spring, I was up checking out the route, uh, was skiing up there. And there's essentially this section in the middle of the route where, so it was Killian Jornet and uh, Matteo Jacquemoud who did the uphill record and, and Killian who finished up and down and Emily and they take, it's called the Petite and the Grand Plateau. And it basically goes under this big section of Seracs, which are like big ice cliff that can fall down and they went up that way up and down the same route and this spring there were a few incidences of ice fall there and one of which was fatal and it's always kind of been like a a dangerous area you never want to hang out very long there but definitely we saw some some pretty big uh fall this year and the local rescue services were kind of saying to people hey you know like we would really like you not to be taking this route. So when I was up wrecking the route with a friend of mine, actually crossed paths several times with this German couple that was going to be skiing it the next day. And they ended up dying in Serac fall the next day. And it was like this huge wake up for me that I was like, oh my God, like, I don't think that I want to take that route. I don't think wow. that it's really responsible to, to take that route. I also saw this picture afterward of the rescuers who were doing the recovery mission and they were just like underneath this giant Serac fall and they had to be there yeah. doing this recovery mission. And I just like felt like it would have been irresponsible for me to, to mm-hmm. take that route, at least on the uphill. So there's an alternative route, which is the one that I took, which is called the North Ridge. And it really only varies. It probably adds, I think, about two kilometers on to the route, but it goes like it's got a flatter section and then goes a lot steeper. 
And so the disadvantage, I guess, of that route is that it is steeper. It's more a little bit more technical and you need like real mountaineering gear. You need to have uh, boots that can take like a semi-automatic cramp on with steel front points and you need an ice axe because there can be exposed ice. But the advantage is that you're not exposed to that serac ball. So for the way up, I chose to take the the north ridge up and then it rejoins it basically like they start you know the beginning of the route is the same they diverge for a little bit and then go back together for the final ridge um on the way down i still took the the same route because you're exposed for a very short amount of time and in the daylight so you know probably instead rather than 10 minutes probably like one minute uh or two minutes max underneath that area and the reason that i said that that was like an important choice and part of why it was meaningful for me was because i feel like like the Mont Blanc FKT is something that like it's it's not just running it really you know marries trail running and uh, alpinism and the route that I took you know sort of demanded you know a higher level a slightly higher level of of alpine skills and it's something that I've been like really working on for a long time and trying to gain autonomy and confidence in myself in that. So being able to do it via that route was like super meaningful for me. Wow. Yeah. There's, wow. There's so much there. Like I've only seen Serac Ball once on Rainier and it was right before I had to cross under it. And honestly, that was like the most terrifying moment of my life. I'm sitting there putting my crampons on and just giant ice blocks are tumbling right where I'm going to go. And, um, it is weird when you're like doing real alpinism and like the scale is so different. Like, I, cause I mean, I saw those seracs like on the way up the mountain and they don't look that big, but then when they're coming down the mountain, you know, you just like, wow. <laughs> and um, I can't yeah. even imagine like being on a route where you, you know, somebody, you know, just, you know, perished in that condition. So like, um, thank you for sharing that, that backstory for that. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's it's a very weird experience to have cross paths with somebody and and to to know that you know that was sort of you know the the end for them it was as i said it was a wake up call and it was you know somewhat mm-hmm. emotional even if we never even exchanged names you know we passed them on the way up and right. back down and just to kind of like it's it's pretty unbelievable and i think that you know one of the things though about the mountains is that we're always playing this game about how do we minimize risk and how do we try to make mm-hmm. sure that we're doing something as safely as possible um and i mm-hmm. think especially when you know, we start getting into sort of objectively dangerous high alpine terrain. Uh, it's something we really mm-hmm. need to be taking into account. Absolutely. And when you're introducing this aspect of speed, like for an FKT as well, like, you know, you know, trying to do things safely and mitigate risk, but also do it quickly. And it's just like this whole next level. And as you said, you know, you've been working on this for a while because you can't just go out and just do it as fast as you can, like various dangerous things, like right off the bat, I mean, you can, but <laughs> you're greatly increasing your risk. So learning to, to increase your skills so that you can, you can do things quickly and safely, you know, that is a very delicate balance. Yeah, absolutely. And so, I mean, as, as you know, I did this FKT, the style that I did was supported as well. And so mm-hmm. that's also something, you know, that I, that I thought about is that, uh, you know, um, 
we want to be maximizing safety for ourselves. And then also, you know, when you have an entourage, right, other people who are, right. are going into the adventure with you, you're also trying to think about, you know, okay, well, how am I going to make sure I can maximize their safety um, as well when we're doing this? Right. Yeah. And you don't want to be putting uh, someone who's there to help you at risk. Yeah, absolutely. I think it goes like it connects with a lot of the stuff that, you know, generally we talk about, like in the in the high mountains, right, there's, as I said, these like really big objective risks that change things a little bit. But like, you know, I, I'm sure that, you know, all of your listeners are familiar with, or hope that they all are with, you know, like the sort of 10 hiking essentials, right? And like, that always, um, we can look at outdoor pursuits as in some ways being inherently um, selfish, kind of. Uh, they bring right. us a lot. Um, but but what can we do to make sure that, you know, we're safe and everybody else is safe when we're out doing it? Um, and I think, as you said, when you're trying to go fast and uh, fast and light in a lot of ways, that's kind of amplified. Absolutely. Yeah. So I would love it if you could talk a little bit about... Um some of the technical skills and equipment you did need for Mont Blanc and, and how you've like gained some of those skills, uh, you know, and how you're uh, maybe just some ways you're marrying them with, you know, this like running and fast and light philosophy and, and how that kind of came to play uh, on the mountain. So I, I would say that like before actually I became a runner, I was more of a mountain person. I worked in huts in the, in the white mountains, um, on the AT, the Appalachian mountain club huts. Um, and I was part of the mountain club when I was in college and actually got to do Mount Rainier, um, which you just mentioned you've been up nice. and that was my first time ever on a glacier, um, back in 2008. Yeah. So I would say that in some ways, you know, like there were, I had a lot, started with more alpine skills before I started running but then like running really kind of like took over I would say in my life like I in the last uh several years it's been taken a much bigger place but then 2020 came along and all of the races that I wanted to do were canceled and so it was actually this great opportunity to sort of get back out in the mountains and my husband is a, a mountain guide he's an IFMGA mountain guide here in Chamonix France where we live and so so we've done a lot of stuff in mountains together and I'm constantly learning from him as well. And he also, you know, pushes me in terms of my skill set as well and reminds me that I need to be uh, always honing that stuff in. So, I mean, really specifically, you know, I have, I probably, boy, I had already been up Mont Blanc via like five different routes uh, before <laughs> this um, before this attempt, and I'd spent a lot of time up there this spring. Once I decided that I that I wanted to go for it, and then I was like practicing things like cramponing technique, like literally just like running around on the Merida glass in my crampons up and down slopes. <laughs> um, I also was working. I was kind of silly with a girlfriend. We made like an obstacle course, kind of that we had to run around. Um, oh, that's fabulous! To, like, I love that. A little bit more comfortable. <laughs> Right. Um, yeah. And and then and then we also were like practicing our cross rescue skills. You know, obviously you hope that's not going to happen. That you're not going right. to need those skills, but uh, wanting to feel really comfortable in your crampons and uh, hone your skills in so that they're a reflex more than like mm -hmm. a oh crap, what do I do in this situation? Um, right. Was one of the goals going into it. 
There's also like a lot of working on like honing in the gear um, and getting to know gear really well. I don't know if you've seen mm-hmm. videos of like schemo racers um, doing like practicing their transitions, but I was thinking about mm-hmm. that a bit as well. Like, okay, because I'm going to change boots. I'm going to put on crampons. I'm going to take off crampons. I'm going to put on micro spikes, take off micro spikes and be like, how can I gain speed or not lose time in all those transitions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you do want, anytime you're dealing with technical gear or or transitions, you want it to be as smooth as possible. And you don't want to be standing there going, okay, what next? And walking yourself through it. So I'm kind of curious if you could just tell us a little bit about uh, those transitions and like maybe points on the mountain, like where you transitioned gear, like how, uh, like from running gear to mountaineering gear to maybe some in between and, and what that looked like and, and how it was staged and all of that. Absolutely. So I, I left the church at like two in the morning. And at that point I already had on, I had like these, um, semi-rigid running shoe cum, uh, mountain boots, <laughs> um, that, uh, that Scarpa makes. And I was, I left the church with those on pants on harness already on but then like a running vest and i had uh the day before thanks to a friend i'd picked out like weeks before a good spot that a friend could drop a bag for me so the day before my friend uh charlotte brought my bag up which had um my helmet with uh with a really bright headlamp on it i had a lighter helmet or headlamp to begin with um and also you know the ice axe the crampons the um uh actual like you know ice screws and crevasse rescue kit and then all of my layers because i had like a you know long sleeve puffy polar fleece windbreaker three pairs of gloves hat all of sort of that extra stuff a little bit of extra food and water so she had the day before literally just like hit it hit it in the woods for me um and so when i got up to that i could do like a quick switch, pull off the running vest, put on that, and then continue up the mountain. Um, And then after another, I would say like thousand feet about, I uh, met a friend of mine whose name is Valentine Fabre, and she had bivvied up high so that we could rope up to cross what's called the junction, which is this really crevassed section of glacier, um, which was kind of like one of, you know, the more heads up, it's pretty flat, but it's like where you have to be aware of snow bridges and all of that. So she was there to rope up with me. And then we continued. And at that point, because it's pretty flat, we were like on micro spikes, but had ice axes out um, and Mm -hmm. and were roped. And then once we got onto the North Ridge and it was quite a bit steeper, that's when I threw on my crampons. Um, And we actually unroped at that point, because when you're on a ridge and not placing any protection the rope is kind of not doing a whole lot for you in terms of safety so from there I went to the summit and back alone and then ran down with her and then the last real transition I I took off I had crampons on micro spikes on did a couple switches according to how steep it was and then the only other real big transition I did was with about I guess 4,000 feet of descent left to go. My friend Meg McKenzie was waiting for me with my running shoes. Um, and it was the, uh, yeah. the spot where I had left my my running vest as well. So at that point, I did like this Formula One change where I <laughs> pulled off my my mountain boots, my pants, my harness, everything, ice axe, helmet, everything, stowed it all in a trash bag and 
got myself into running running mode and ran down. And then the next day, my friend Emily Schmitz, who's also an American, hiked back up and got it for me. So that was super kind of her as well. I definitely nice. had, this was not an unsupported FKT. I had definitely had help. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. I, th- I think that's amazing. You had so many people helping you with this FKT. And it kind of makes me wonder, like with all of these different like gear changes, did you have any issues with your gear or, you know, snafus or, or, you know, anything like that? The only real snafu gear type snafus that I had, well, one was that it was really windy on the ridge and one of my mittens blew away. Um, and fortunately I had, I, it was, it was when I was putting my, my crampons on and, uh, one of my mittens blew away, but fortunately I had put, I had three pairs of gloves and mittens with me. So I was able to, to pull out another one. And then I actually made like a terrible rookie mistake, which I'm almost embarrassed to share, which is that I didn't blow, like, you know, when you have like a camelback or, or flasks and it's really cold, you have to blow air back into them so they don't freeze. And I didn't do that. And my water froze. And oh, no. so I ended up like being pretty dehydrated by the end of it. It's one of these things where like, I should know better. Like I have done this enough. Right. To know that's that's what you need to do, but I was like pretty focused in my like in time, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, and and didn't do it. No, <laughs> it, it's funny you mentioned that because I did the exact same thing on Rainier because like we were kind of racing weather and <laughs> I totally forgot, and then I get like almost to the summit, I'm like I'm really thirsty and my hose is frozen. <laughs> like when you're very focused, like even like things like that, you can forget to do. Yeah. Absolutely. It's, I mean, it's, it's basic stuff, but um, it can happen to the best of us. (laughs) Aside from the wind on the ridge, did you uh, have any issues with the weather? I had actually been talking to a local meteorologist in the whole week leading up. So he's been doing weather forecasting here in Chamonix for like 25 years and does the forecasting for like the the UTMB race. And so he's pretty Mm. used to uh, planning, helping people plan um, for big mountain adventures and so he was like, he does weather forecast, but I talked to him about like the specific information I needed, which was particularly about the zero degree isotherm. So like the freezing level, because what I needed mm-hmm. for the conditions was basically, I needed like a multiple days of freeze thaw cycle so that the snow would be kind of frozen enough to carry my weight as I ran over it. Because as soon as you start like punching through the snow, you just lose mm-hmm. so much time and energy. Yeah. So. I knew that the day that I picked was like the day and then the only sort of extra, um, I guess, extra parameter that came in pretty late. Actually, it was really the day before that the model started showing strong winds and we and we did get strong winds and that made it colder than I might have liked. Um, One note that's just interesting talking to him a lot. One of the things that he said that he's found in the last five to eight years or so that he finds it's harder to predict weather than forecast reliably than it used to be. He said that like climate Mm -hmm. change is kind of changing a lot of the weather phenomena. And so that he's having to approach his forecasting differently and that it's, Mm -hmm. it's bringing him a lot of anxiety because he 
knows that people depend on his forecasting for safety and that he's feeling like it definitely has has changed a lot in terms of how they're forecasting. I don't know if that's the same in the US or in, you know, the Rockies or or anywhere anywhere else, but that's certainly what he's been observing in uh in the Mont Blanc Massif. That's really interesting and yeah, it will be interesting to see how that continues to to change and evolve. My dad was a meteorologist and I remember just like, he could just like look at, you know, and he did it old school. He didn't do it with computers. He could just like look at the weather map and where the pressure systems were. And he could tell you with like more accuracy than like the people on television, like what was going to happen. He's no longer with us, but it would be kind of interesting to see like, you know, how he, what he would think about that. Um, Because I would imagine somebody who's been doing this for a long time, especially like the meteorologist you're talking about in one area. I mean, he's very familiar with that mountain and how that mountain affects weather because they create their own weather. Um, And so for him to notice that it's changing is very interesting. Um, And yeah, I wonder how that will affect mountaineering and and mountain weather forecasting on a a global scale. It'd be very interesting to see. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that one of the things, you know, that's, that makes forecasting in the mountains really hard is the intricacy of the, of the topography and they do make their own weather and that, you know, whereas like in a flatter area, like if your forecasting of a storm is off by say five miles to the east or to the west, like you'd probably still see that weather. Um, but because like, especially in the Alps, it's like these deep valleys that really are isolated from one another. So you can be like, wait a minute, like I, they said there was going to be a storm and, and I didn't see it at all, but it actually was only like five miles away. It's just like over right. the top of the mountain over there. So I think it, mm-hmm. that presents some, some unique challenges. Um, but I'd yeah. love to talk to more meteorologists. I found it fascinating to talk to this guy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that that would be really fascinating as well. Um, that's also a good person to know <laughs> a local meteorologist that knows the mountain you're going to climb. <laughs> Yeah, I actually, we had to, my husband and I had to use him once when we were climbing and a freak thunderstorm rolled in. This was about five years ago and we were like a pitch and a half from the summit and my husband called him up and was like, Yves-Marie, can you tell us, like, is this going to roll through and we should like hunker down or is this going to last for a while and we should like climb through it? (laughs) And it was like, like pretty pretty good local connection there (laughs) yeah that's fantastic to have the the mountain meteorologist on your speed dial (laughs) i love it absolutely um so i know you mentioned earlier you know you've been up mount blanc many times and uh this fkt has been a goal of yours for a while um so i'd love to hear a little bit more about maybe your previous attempts and you know aside maybe aside from this weather window what the conditions were and what the timing was like to make this the right time to do it. Yeah, so you're absolutely right that it's been a project that I've had for quite a while. And we're actually joking um, with one of my sponsors because I've like, been talking to them about it for years and they're like oh sure sure you're gonna try Mont Blanc this year yeah yeah of course (laughs) but the the reality of it is that we've actually the last two years the Alps have kind of been uh at least the French Alps have been in a drought and we have not gotten enough snow in the winter uh to really fill in that section I mentioned before called the junction 
And you need the, basically you need a lot of snow in the winter to fill things in enough to make snow bridges. It's not that it was like impossible to get through that section before, but to do it fast and safe um, was um, definitely presented really big challenges the last two years. And I would basically know, you know, by uh, April, that it wasn't going to happen because we just didn't have enough snow. And then this year, we finally, we actually had a really bad drought in January and February. And then in March, April, May, we had a lot, a lot of precipitation, um, much of which was falling as, as snow. And so the conditions were like, you know, got to be very good. But the challenge of mountain projects, I think generally, and we've definitely seen this, you know, with like some of the folks, I mean, Jack obviously had an amazing run up Denali, but there were a couple of female oh, yeah. attempts on Denali FKTs this year. And they just didn't have the conditions, you know, and you have right. to, and, and some of that might've been because of the amount of time that they were able to like be on mountain waiting for conditions was a little bit limited. Um, and I mean, I'm, I'm very lucky to live at, essentially like at the foot of Mont Blanc. And so I didn't have to go anywhere. And I just blocked out two months where I was like, hopefully <laughs> in this two month period, there will be a day when I can do it. And, um, right. and, but as I said, I was like kind of waiting for pretty specific conditions. And the challenge is that like, you've got this elevation gradient where you're going from 1000 meters to 4,800 meters. And that's like, I mean, just like a huge amount of vert and to get good conditions mm -hmm. from top to bottom is super hard. Right. And so I was just like waiting for a long time for the snow up top to transform enough so that it wasn't just like winter powder snow because you can't really run in that mm -hmm. but at the same time right. not wanting it to melt out too much at the bottom um and and so I was like talking to the meteorologist I was talking to mountain guides I was calling the mountain huts to ask them about like what you know what's the track like uh you know is there a refreeze at night and so um and that was sort of how I was able to hone in that day also spending a bunch of time up there myself but like also like the challenge was also being like okay I want to go up and see what it's like but I don't want to make myself too tired in case <laughs> it's really good um right, right. so there's a little bit of like a, a waiting game and like how do I how do you get to a peak of of fitness but like not go over it uh, mm -hmm. but also not over rest. Like it was, I found it super challenging, I think is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> um, right. Yeah. Whereas when, like when you have a race, which is what I do a lot more, um, you know, way in advance when it's going to happen. Um, and mm -hmm. you can say like, okay, on this date, I need to be ready. But I was just like sometime between, you know, May and July, this could happen. <laughs> um, right. But, um, but so, yeah, the, in the end we had, I had great conditions. I had very, very good conditions. The North Ridge um, was in incredible condition. And, and, you know, if, if you were to look at photos that on, on that North Ridge, it almost looks like there's like a stairs going up it because there had been a bunch of actually skiers going up it and had been like kind of walking up it and and the part that was in ice was pretty short like it can be entirely in ice but it was only probably you know 20 feet of ice that I had to go up um 
the one challenge in terms of conditions was that I thought it was going to be warmer than it was. And so on the way down, it didn't like uh, the snow didn't soften at all. So I tried a couple uh, glissades and just ended up with ice chunks, like hitting ice chunks and just ended up having to having to run down to the bottom on like really, really hard snow uh, until mm-hmm. I got onto trail. Um, but uh, I've had people ask me, you know, like, oh, do you want to go back? Would you want to, you know, try it again? Because I do think that it would be possible to better my time if I could do it with the exact same conditions. I know how I would mm-hmm. how I would change it. But finding the day with those same conditions is would be really hard. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that I love most about mountaineering, but also hate the most is that you're constantly waiting for the mountain to be right. Like, <laughs> because it is so hard to have like the good conditions all the way up or d- and down. Like a lot of times you're just like, well, you know, I mean, I'm not in an FKT setting, but if you just want to climb the mountain, you're just like, well, I'm just going to deal with less than optimal conditions at some point on the mountain because I want to go up there, you know, because it, it is hard to get that, that perfect day. Absolutely. And I, I mean, I, as you said, it's one of the things that we love about the mountains and one of the things that's a big challenge about the mountains. And I think that, you know, having run a lot more on trails where you're not playing that game um, as well. I think it is important for people who aspire to, to, you know, going fast and light in the high mountains for, it's really important for people to keep in mind that whereas you have, you know, all you you have your selection of things basically that you have control over. And that's going to be like, you know, your fitness and your fueling and your gear um, and all those things that we're used to, you know, I can control all of that when I'm going out to trail run. And then if you want to do something in like the Alpine, you add these extra parameters that you, that are completely Mm -hmm. out of your control um, and are really, really determinant for, you know, your success and Mm -hmm. having to, accept that you can't control everything is yes. like seeding that control is really important. Absolutely. Yeah. You definitely hit the nail on the head. Like I remember when I was transitioning from just doing a lot of trail stuff to, you know, Alpine and that was so hard for me because I was used to just going because when you're on trail, you can just go when you're ready and being like, okay, I have to actually check the forecast. Oh, is the mountain in right now? Oh, that glacier is out. Like, can't do it this year or whatever. And that was such a hard, hard lesson to be like, I have to wait. I can't just go when I want to. Absolutely. And I think it's interesting, my husband, because as I mentioned, he's a mountain guide. We've been talking a lot about this because he has a lot of clients that get in touch with him and will have very specific objectives about what they want to do. And it's like, I want to do this route or I want to do this summit. And what he's really working Uh, on in a lot of ways is education in terms of helping, you know, people understand um, that, like, if you have a very limited window of time in which you can do something, so say you have a specific day or a specific weekend, or you can go on vacation, and you have one week, that like, maybe you should be more sort of adapt expectations so that you're thinking more about an experience than about a specific route or summit. Um, and I mm-hmm. think that we it's something we can definitely all learn from is that like, rather than saying, you know, on this day, I will do this thing. It's like, I will do something and have a great experience if I'm limited to, to one day, um, but I'll be open to 
you know, what, what exactly that might be and focus more mm-hmm. on the experience than on the objective. I love that. I love that idea of, yeah, having the experience and that's a good way to frame it because I think in the end, like, and I think this is one of the things that just attracts me to the, like the mountains so much, even though at first it frustrated me is like, you have to respect and have patience for what the mountain gives you on any given day. Sometimes you think you have the right conditions and you get up there and you're like, oh, nope, this was just an experience. <laughs> Time to go back down. <laughs> yeah. It's it's funny that you say that because I actually, like a, a week or so ago, discovered a voice note that I had left myself on my phone the night before I went for the FKT, kind of reminding myself, I was like, this is a note that I'm leaving for myself. And I think that you should remember that. <laughs> um, and I and I was reminding myself, you know, about how much the whole process of preparing for this, like how much I learned through the process, and how it would still be a success to get up partway up the mountain and make a good choice to turn around because the conditions weren't ready. And then, you know, spend time thinking about what did I learn from that experience and how can I apply it later on? Um, and it was just mm-hmm. super funny because I'd forgot entirely forgotten that I'd left myself this <laughs> voice note. Um, and I was like, wow, that was very wise of me. <laughs> right? Yeah. I love that. That's great. I remember like the the point where I got to when I realized that um, I was willing to turn around like and not be so upset about it. Um, and, and recognizing that as a big turning point in my development as like a, as a, you know, a mountain woman, (laughs) just being like, you know, it's okay to, you know, look at this as like an experience and like, and, and being proud of myself for reaching that point where, cause like, you know, I'm definitely like a person that doesn't like to turn around. And like the first time that I was like on a mountain, bad snow conditions. And I was just like, I just stopped and I had a conversation with myself and I was like, this is a like, you might die scenario. Like it's time to turn around and turning around and being sad that I wasn't going to make it to the top, but being like even more proud of the fact that I was able to recognize poor conditions and, and make the call to turn around and turn around safely. I mean, I think that that is like um, a huge component. Like when you leave the trail, that is a huge component, the ability to turn around, to recognize, you know, when you're in over your head or you have the wrong conditions or just things just aren't going right and to be able to turn around and go back. I, I love that, that anecdote because like, I think when I think back, I cannot identify a single time that I have ever regretted turning around in the mountains. And I, I have a hard time doing it. Like making the decision is never, well, no, occasionally it's pretty easy. Occasionally you're like, I got to get the heck out of here. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) You know, I, I do sometimes. I do sometimes struggle with making the decision, but I don't think I've ever once regretted having made that decision. And I do think that being able to make that decision and live with it and you know appreciate having make, made it is uh, actually a really good indicator of you know maturity in terms of your relationship to your mountain or to yourself and to the mountains um, because mm-hmm. doing that you know shows that you can recognize you know where the value lies uh, and where the mm-hmm. important things are and I think that's really great. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I definitely am at a, a point now where I'm more. I feel happier when I get back to my car than when I got to the summit. 
because then I know that, you know, getting what is the old saying, like getting to the top is only, you know, it's optional, but getting back is, you know, necessary. And yeah, yeah definitely a, a point in your uh, climbing career where you realize, okay, I'm, I've got my priorities straight now. Absolutely. And I mean, I think statistically speaking, most accidents happen on the way down anyway. Um, So yeah, it's not over till it's over. (laughs) Right, exactly. As any FKT -er would know, it is not over until you get to the end. um, And you can't let up your concentration until the end. But boy, I mean, Heather, you've done so many like super long things as well. And I actually I was thinking about that as I was talking about the weather and trying to pick like one perfect day. And I can't even imagine what that's like when you're doing multi day um, things or, you know, multi week things and how so much you have to accept so much being out of your control. I think that's pretty incredible. (laughs) Yeah, that is a huge component. And I am a very, like, very much a person who likes to be in control, you know, and I think that's been a huge area of growth for me, especially tackling, you know, multi-week or multi-month FKTs, multi-day FKTs, because you can only foresee that first bit. And then the rest, you're just like, I have to be ready to roll with whatever happens. (laughs) You know, um, yeah, and it's it's definitely it's been good for me <laughs> to learn to relinquish that control. Yeah, I mean that's a, that's awesome, and I think something that we could all learn from. And I think that one of the things that one of the things that we actually that I certainly get out of the mountains, and I would I imagine from what you're saying that it feels the same to you, is that actually going out in the mountains and having to realize and accept that like you don't get to decide everything that like the mountains or the trail or the weather are going to make those decisions for you sometimes Mm -hmm. it makes you feel small and it's something that I actually love about I mean I'm actually physically a very small person but also (laughs) um, but also I love being in the mountains because it makes you feel so tiny and unimportant. Um, And I think Mm -hmm. that's just like something I actually kind of seek out. Uh, It kind of makes everything, you know, puts everything in, um, uh, in perspective. And I love that. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not a physically small person. And so, but I also love that, like, you know, that sense of just being, you know, very insignificant in the grand scheme of things uh, out there. And and it's very humbling and, and beautiful. Uh, I, I similarly, my first experience with that wasn't mountaineering, but like when I was uh, working in Glacier National Park in northern Montana, and the first time I encountered a grizzly bear on the trail, like while I was solo, and just this, this sense of awe at this incredible animal, but also that feeling of like toppling off the top of the food chain. <laughs> like never having had that experience before in my life and being like oh this is a completely like complete reorientation of perspective and like how I feel in the wilderness um very similar and you know yeah when I started mountaineering I started feeling that same like sense of like I'm not at the top here like I am just this speck on the side of the mountain and um isn't it amazing to just be this tiny part of of nature right now. Absolutely. I'd love to hear maybe one final thing, like at what point on Mont Blanc, or maybe it was at the church when you finished, when did you realize everything was clicking and this FKT was going to happen? And how did you feel 
So I, it's actually hilarious because I, um, from the very beginning, this is also like a little bit embarrassing that I would have done this, but I actually um, noted down Emily Forsberg's times incorrectly um, <laughs> when I like first started conceiving of this project. I had like swapped the minutes um, in the uphill time and the downhill time. So I thought that she had done like five hours and 37 minutes or something on the uphill and um, two hours and 17 minutes on the downhill, something like that. And so I got to the top and I was like, oh my God, I am 20 minutes ahead of schedule. Like this is incredible. <laughs> and so I like, <laughs> I was like kind of congratulating myself then. And in my head though, like I, I did not think, you know, this is in the bag. I thought, well, like, I think I just like, I just got the FKT on the uphill at least like this, that's amazing. But I mm -hmm. then I hilariously like took a bit of time and like took some selfies and <laughs> had somebody take a picture <laughs> of me because I like thought that I had all this extra time. And in the end, I was only four minutes ahead. And <laughs> so I had a little premature celebration and then... <laughs> <laughs> and then I started on the way down and on the way down, boy, it wasn't until I had like gone through, met back up with my friend Meg and was like, you know, running down because the whole way down in my head, I was thinking like, this is such a long descent. I mean, we're talking about like more than 12,000 feet. I don't know. I can't remember how many feet it is, um, but a massive <laughs> descent. And I was like, right. do not blow up your quads. Like I was constantly right. in this like, <laughs> okay, go fast, but like, don't go too fast. Don't go too fast. Right. And then it was like, when when I got like, I knew I was nearing like the flat section. I was like, Oh my gosh, I like, this is going to happen. Like I'm actually going to, you know, I, I think I can really do this, but because I'm also somebody who uh, rolls their ankles a lot. I was just like, mm -hmm. like I said, it is not over until it's over. Like you need to right. get like off of this trail and down onto the flat. Um, and so, yeah, when I, once I hit the flat and I like knew okay, like at this point I am, you know, like a mile and a half from the church and it's flat pavement. And I like, I'm still perfectly capable of like falling off a sidewalk. Like I wouldn't put myself, <laughs> put, put, myself put that past myself, but, right. but like, I was like, okay, now is the time that you can like leave everything out there. And, and Meg, who is with me, she was like, empty the tank. Like, I don't want you to get to the church with anything left. And I was like, okay, mm -hmm. like this is where like, and I was just so concentrated on like, you know, giving it everything I had to like, you know, just on that last flat part. Cause I'd been like holding back a little bit the rest of the time. So I think that was really it. And then when I got to the church, I didn't expect people to be there. And then like, there were, uh, you know, like right. friends, so many friends there. And I was just like, this overwhelming kind of like uh, surprise and joy. And then as I was saying, like I had, I really struggled with like the, the planning process and picking the right time. And I had like this weight that came off of me in terms of just like, mm -hmm. oh my God, I don't have to obsess over this anymore. And that was like, <laughs> I think when I like got to the church and like tagged the building and I was like, <laughs> right. And I, and then I like sat down and was like, joyous and like relieved just like absolutely relieved <laughs> yeah yeah I think it's great to hear you kind of 
elaborate on that because when I was watching like the the video and the, the pictures of you finishing like I literally could see that entire like transition from the like full out effort to the joy to the relief like you can see it on your face like <laughs> you could see that whole story and so I love hearing you say like that is what was going through your mind too because I think that it was very well expressed as well in just your body language <laughs> as you finished this. I'm not- yeah, I'm kind of an open book. And I think like also be, one of the reasons, right, that this was really meaningful and, and was a project for so long is that like I look up at Mont Blanc, you know, from I don't actually see Mont Blanc from home. I see the Aiguille Goutte, but like from Chamonix, you see Mont Blanc. And I had spent like so much time, like every time looking up being like, I wonder what it's like up there right now. Like, what, is the track good? Or, you know, and like, and now I can look at up, up at it and be like, oh, that's pretty. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, like, so that makes me think of a, a follow up question, you know, because I, I just climbed a mountain yesterday. And, and as I was coming down the mountainous mountain, I've wanted to climb for a long time. And as I was coming down, I was thinking to myself, like, now I'll never look at this mountain the same way again, because I've been to the top. So you, you say you look at Mount Blanc now and you think, oh, that's pretty. How do you look at the mountain? Do you look at the mountain differently? Like now that you set the FKT, aside from the oh, now it's pretty and you're not obsessing, like, is there a different like <laughs> i i do think that it's like evolved a little bit i mean one of the really cool things about having it like visible and and the fact that the actual route that i took is quite visible uh from the valley is that it allows me to like relive it um mm. uh, a bunch of times like I, and you know look up and like be remembering different moments from that and i think that's something that you know you don't necessarily get that often. Um, you know, I've spent a lot of time on other trails and on other mountains and don't actually get that, you know, really lucky chance to be able to like look up at it frequently and almost be transported in my head back to, to these, you know, incredible mm-hmm. moments. Um, and so I feel super fortunate about that. I would, I like, I, there's just there's so much to do up there that like it's it's a nice it's nice for me to be able to look up at it and like be able to also think about other things I want to do up there Um, and rather than having kind of a singular focus being like you know oh there's so many other places and other things I could do up there and so I think that that like it's liberated kind of my spirit a little bit to be able to be almost more creative in a lot of ways too so um so yeah, I, I feel, I just feel very lucky about it, but I also look up at it and I think like, I mean, the mountains are changing really fast. Uh, it's getting harder to like, you know, to, to find the right conditions to do these kinds of FKTs. And I'm also like hoping very much that there are going to be good enough conditions so that like some other badass chick can go and like beat my record because then maybe I would want to go back. But right now I can just like right. kind of rest on my laurels. But um, but right, like right. looking up at it, I'm like, oh, I hope that somebody else can have like such a, as rich of an experience um, as I did, like on that same ridge that I can see. That's really beautiful. I love that. Thank you so much for coming on the show and telling us all about your experience on Mont Blanc and in the mountains in general. It's been great. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun to to talk about it with you. Um, And I I love sharing this time together. So thanks so much. (laughs) 
Thanks again, Hillary, for coming on the show. You can see all her FKTs on the website, fastestknowntime.com, and follow her adventures on Instagram at Hillary underscore Girardi. Thanks again to Merrill Test Lab for supporting the show. Be sure to check out their new Skyfire 2 shoe at Merrill.com.